the last Monday of May, honoring the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. Originally known as Decoration Day, it originated in the years following the Civil War and became an official federal holiday in 1971. Now, Veterans Day is different than Memorial Day. Veterans Day celebrates the service of U.S. military veterans, while Memorial Day honors those who died while in the military. So Memorial Day is about remembering. It's about remembering those that have gone. Uh, there's a story told of an old Navajo Indian who had a good fortune to have oil discovered on his land. He became a very wealthy man as a result, but wealth didn't change him. He went on living just as he did before. In, mean, in the meantime, the money piled up in the bank. Every now and then, the old man would visit the bank and say to the banker, crops all dried up, sheep's all dead, cattle all stolen. The banker would smile and take the old man into the vault. He'd sit him on a table and place several large bags of silver dollars in front of him and leave him alone for a while for the Indian to count his silver. After a while, the man would come out and say, Crops fine, sheep's all alive, cattle all back. The point is this. Every once in a while, people need to be reminded of things. We need to be reminded of things. And throughout the Bible, God's people are told to remember certain things. In Numbers 15, verse 37, Numbers 15, verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to the Lord your God. God told them to remember, here's something, make these tassels as something to remind you of my commands and to obey them. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the next book over. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 17. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm which, with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all those peoples you now fear. He said, remember the great miracles you saw that happened with Pharaoh. Remember those things you witnessed. Look in chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as to this day. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed, like the nations the Lord destroyed before you. So you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. He says, don't forget what the Lord has done for you. 
The Lord's provided wealth for you. He provided comfort. Do not forget what God has done for you. Look in Psalms 105. The book of Psalms 105, verse 5. It says, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he pronounced. God tells his people time and again to remember, remember, remember. And look in Revelation chapter 3. The last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. He tells them to remember what I've commanded you and then obey it. So we need to remember, we need to obey. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God is telling his people to remember, remember, remember. In our text today, we're going to look at the Israelites. And we're going to learn some things in the Old Testament that apply to us today in the New Testament. So look over in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You with me? 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. First Samuel 7, verse 1. So the men of Kidrath-Jerim came, came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar the son to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kidrath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Now, the question we're going to start with is, why did the people mourn? This is what we're going to come back to. So I want to kind of set up the scene as to what we just read. So what we just read, the people saw the ark of the Lord after 20 years. It came back, but the people were in mourning, even though the ark of the Lord was back with them. So, to help you understand what's going on up to this point, before Samuel became the priest of the tabernacle, the tabernacle had been run by Eli and his two sons. So Eli was a priest, and he had two sons, and they ran God's tabernacle. Now, Eli's sons would steal from the sacrifices. They would take things they shouldn't take. They would also sleep with the women that served at the temple. And so this furiated God what Eli's sons was doing. Now, Eli knew about it. The people knew about it. But Eli did not deal with his sons. He didn't deal with it. So God, in turn, said to Eli... I'm going to remove, remove you from your duties. This will show you the consequence of you not dealing with your sons. In addition to that, both of your sons are going to die on the same day. Now look in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. 
First Samuel 4, verse 10. So this is leading up to what we just read. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. At this point, the Israelites and the Philistines got into a fight on the plains of Apek. So Israel lost 4,000 soldiers at first in the battle. And they started losing badly. So they thought the elders got together and said, hey, let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. If we bring this out, you know, God will protect us and we will win. They brought it out. And what happened? God allowed uh, the Philistines to kill not just them, but 30,000 more people. Then they captured the Ark and took the Ark with them somewhere else. For the next few weeks, the Philistines tried to show off their new trophy, the Ark of the Covenant. But unfortunately for them, God was not into show and tell. So for them to show it off didn't do anything but infuriate God even more. Look in chapter 5, 1 Samuel 5, verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy upon that city. Throwing it into a great panic, he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For the death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Everywhere they took the ark, God had an outbreak of tumors and rats all over the city. The panic was everywhere. Nobody wanted it. And so they said, let's get rid of it. Let's send it back where it belongs. So they sent back the ark of God, and they had, um, they had a, a guilt offering of five golden tumors. They made tumors represented from gold, and five golden rats. So they sent that up as an offering as they sent the ark back. So then we get to chapter 7. Now let's read verse 1 again. So the men of Ekron, Erith, Kibrit, Jerim, came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kithrath, Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. So the question is, why are they mourning? They finally got the ark back. Why would they be mourning if they got the ark back? The fact is, the ark returned to them, but yet God's presence and blessings did not return to them. 
So for 20 years, they were living, worshiping Astra, worshiping other gods, worshiping different things, even though they had the Ark of the Covenant right there with them. But yet, they had God's physical covenant there, Ark, but yet God's presence himself was not with them. You know, each of God's punishments were intended to get people's attention. God has a way of getting our attention. Even though they had the ark, God still wasn't with them. You know, we can see this time and again in the Bible. People that want to be right with God, but yet they're living a different kind of life. Think about Samson. He's the strongest man in the world. But yet one day woke up and thought he had the strength and did not realize that God had left him. Guys, there are so many times that just because you go to church does not mean you and God are unified as one. Church doesn't unify you with God. It's how you live. These people had the Ark of the Covenant with them, but was still worshiping other gods. Well, this infuriated our Father in Heaven. Like, why, why should I bless you when you are consciously making an effort to do something that just totally is opposite of what I call for you to do. So for 20 years, he disciplined his own people. You say, well, why would he do that? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, if God didn't love you, he wouldn't discipline you. The whole purpose of God's discipline is to get you to remember To remember what you left behind. To remember God's blessings. To remember to to help us be homesick and desire God's blessings. So what God did for Israel for 20 years was he had them under his judgment. They have been worshiping idols, pagan idols, nations sacrificing to uh, fertility God, the Asherah. And now 20 years later... All of a sudden, they come to their senses and they remember what it was like when they had a true relationship with God. You know, sometimes we can go through things and we can start out great and then we can kind of drift away. And then God will discipline us. And you're going to have one or two responses. You're going to be like, you know what? I need to come to my senses and get back where I need to be at. Or when that discipline comes, it's going to make you angry, and you're going to start pointing the finger at everybody else. Either you're going to respond and turn to God and remember his blessings, 
Or are you going to get angry and drift further away and start to point fingers and blame other people? That was the first thing God wanted his people to do was to remember his blessings. So they sat there and they mourned because they remembered what it was like when they had that relationship with God and were so excited. They remembered it, but they knew that's not where I'm at right now. And they felt bad about it. They thought their God, the God they're worshiping now, was better than the one true God. Because even though they had the one true God, they still were worshiping other things. You know, despite the story of that Navajo Indian, what God has to offer is better than anything you can find in a bank vault. What God has to offer is better than anything in a liquor store, in any relationship. It's better than anything you can find anywhere. Those things may satisfy for a little while, but in the end, they will always leave you feeling empty. You can go drink and party, but you know what? You're going to feel empty that next day, that next week, and all kind of consequences come with it. You can look and find that relationship that's going to excite you for the moment, but then it's going to leave you empty, feeling guilty, stressed out, worried, fleeing when no one pursues. There's going to be all kind of consequences that come with it. And this is what he's telling his people. Listen, God, the one true God is better than any other thing that something can happen in your life. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, we've got to ask ourselves, what do we treasure? Some people treasure a relationship more than they treasure holding to the standards of God. You know what? That relationship is not going to be the thing that gets you into heaven. Only a relationship with God is going to get you into heaven. Some people hold on to, to money and they just want to make sure they money and make sure, you know, I'll give a little bit. I'll like tip the Lord in the offering, but then the rest is coming to me. But then when you die, you can't take any of those tips or anything else with you. Israel has spent 20 years involved in emptiness of putting their treasures into gods that left them nothing. You know, even as a Christian, we can start putting our treasures into something else. And see, here's the thing. The Bible says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, you got to hear what it says. It will be also. So you say, well, that's not where I'm at now. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm still doing my church stuff, even though, you know, I'm working extra and I'm involved with this other thing or person over here. I still am committed. Okay, you may be right now, but it says your heart will be. You may not be there right this minute, but you're drifting that direction. You pitched your tent near Sodom. 
So some people, when you read this, you think, well, that's not where I'm at. I love the Lord right now, and I'm here at church because I love God. (laughs) And you may be. But what about next week and the next week? If you stay on that same path, where are you going to be? That's the issue. So sometimes we can fool ourselves by saying, I'm not there right now. You may not be. But if that's where your treasure is, it's going to lead you over to that area. Look back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So Samuel sees what's going on. He sees the people are mourning. So Samuel tells them what they need to hear. Look in verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. This is the prophet Samuel. He says, And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, everybody, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Now this is what he told them. Why? Because he was not only a good preacher, but he was a good Christian. And this is what good Christians tell people who are in situations like that. See, he didn't go in and tell funny stories and and jokes and we all feel good and, you know, self-help. He went in there and said, listen, you're in sin. You need to completely get rid of it and you need to turn to the Lord. And if you're going to repent, don't blame anybody else. Don't blame the Philistines because they took the ark at first. And so that's how you got caught up in all the other guys. Don't blame anybody else. You take responsibility and you change. And that's what a good Christian tells somebody. Now, you don't have to say it in a mean, harsh way and throw the Bible at them. Shut up and change. That's not what I'm saying. But the truth can still be said in love straightforward instead of pampering it. And then people get lost in the pampering and they don't hear the truth. Samuel was a godly prophet. So what did he give the people? He gave them direction, but he gave them hope as well. Because that's what they needed to see. What is their hope? Your only hope is to realize you messed up and you need to repent. That's hope. You messed up, you need to repent. Why? Because God says, if you do, I will be with you. That's what we need to communicate. So he told them this. And look at the response in verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. So the Israelites put away their bales and asherahs and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled in Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out there before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and uh, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. He told the people what they needed to do. After 20 years, Israel finally remembered what God could be like. And they came back to God. And they became his true people. See guys, repentance doesn't take you years to do. They made a decision to get rid of this thing. They got rid of their stuff. They got rid of their lifestyle. They got rid of all those foreign gods. And they turned to the one true God. And then they went to worship at Mizpah. Now, let me help you understand what's happening here. God chose the location for them to go. He said, take the people to Mizpah. 
Because there is going to be a spiritual revival. is going to be an awakening for them. Now, everyone's there to please God and receive God's blessings. But there's one thing about Mitzvah here. It is on the border of Israel where the Philistines live. So he could have told them to go to any plain, any city, but he told them to go right near their mortal enemies, the Philistines. All you guys gather right there on that border at Mitzvah and worship. Well, once all Israel started going to Mitzvah, the Philistines heard about it. So then they get all their armies together, they get all their troops, because they're thinking, here they all come, and we're about to go to war. So then they get all their swords and clubs, and so they're marching down there to go to fight and kill Israelites. Now, you've heard the old saying, make sure you never bring a knife to a gunfight. What does that mean? That means if you're about to get into a fight, you need to have the right kind of issues, the right weapons to deal with it. So here's all the Israelites. They're la la la, they're going to worship the Lord, they're happy. Nobody taking a weapon with them, and they're going right next to the mortal enemies. Now here comes the Philistines, swords, clubs. I mean, they're coming out ready to do battle. They're ready to kill everybody. Get where I'm going here? Now you would think, this, all of a sudden, the Israelites are freaking out. But look at what he said in verse 3. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And they had no idea what was about to happen. They didn't even know where they were going yet. But God said, If you turn to me like you should, I will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So they probably thought, somewhere in the future, that'll be great. But he's like, and then here's where I want you to go. Now at this point, when they hear all the Philistines are coming, and they're happily going to worship the Lord, but they hear all the Philistines are coming with swords and clubs, they start freaking out. They get anxious. They get nervous. Look in uh, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled in Mitzvah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. So when they hear about the Philistines coming, they look around. We don't have a sword. We don't have nothing with us. And they coming to kill us. Everybody freaks out, except Samuel. When Samuel finds out what's going on, he says, all right, I'm going to offer up a lamb, an offering. I mean, he does it in such a casual way. You know what? We could all die, but I'm just going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. He has such confidence because he knew God was big enough to handle this situation. Even though we don't have any swords, we don't have any clubs, axes, and they have everything, God is still bigger than they are. That's the confidence he had in God. Guys, I say that because sometimes we come and get excited in church, and then we walk out, and we're faced with a situation, and all of a sudden we forget what we were just worshiping. 
or I should say who we were just worshiping. Look in verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below Bethkar. You're talking about God doing something here. Here these people come with swords and axes, and they're running at you, and all of a sudden the Lord starts to thunder, and they see these Israelites running at them with nothing. They're thinking, we're about to tear them up. And all of a sudden God intercedes. They start freaking out. They take off running. So fast, they start throwing their axes and knives and everything because they're trying to get away. So the people with no weapons pick up their weapons and start chasing them, killing them on the way. They had nothing. God turned it into something, and then God gave the great victory. Why? Because they remembered who God was, and they repented and turned back to him. And he said, not only am I going to forgive you, but I'm going to show you something. I'm going to give you something to remember for generations to come. How I told you I would protect you, and I actually did it on your behalf. When the battle was over, Samuel said, I don't want you to ever forget what just happened. Look in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shin. Then he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. It said, after this happened, he set up a marker. He set up a, a, a milestone, something for them to remember. And it's the meaning of it, Ebenezer, is... Thus far has the Lord helped us. Now, what was Samuel doing at this point? He created a mile marker for the Israelites. Now, a mile marker, like when you're driving on a highway, you see those signs on the side that say like 15, 16. It shows you how far you're going, where the mile markers are. So he set up a mile marker for the Israelites. In other words, he set up these stones so every time they look at it, it said, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. All the way up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So once we get past this point, anything that happens, you need to think back to that marker that tells you, thus far, the Lord is with us. Whether it's good or bad, the Lord is with us. He said, you need to know that. You need to understand that. Let that be something for generations to come. The Lord is with us. And this is what he was declaring to the people. This is an important thing for us to declare today. You know, we have a, a lot of good things happening. Uh, Khalifa's about to uh, baptize a friend of hers. Uh, you guys can go ahead back and get ready. And I want to say, when we see somebody getting baptized, when we see what's going on, those are mile markers for us as well. Because it needs to take you back to the day that you said Jesus is Lord. It needs to take you back to the time that you turned away from all those other things, that you made sure that Jesus was the one and only one. Now, here's the lesson for us this morning. In this life, we need to remember at least two things. So you, I don't want to give you 15 things. This isn't a seminar. But when you walk out, at least remember these two things. Number one, we need to remember that God is the only place 
we're ever going to be satisfied. God is the only place we're ever going to be satisfied. You know, there's a lot of other things that could bring you temporary joy. That could be a quick fix of happiness. But the only thing that's going to really satisfy you is God. Now, I'll say this because sometimes he has to give us reminders. He may discipline you. He may challenge you. And again, it's not God that's punishing you, but God may say, you know what? I need to remove my protection for a little bit. Let Satan do a little something, something, but not too much. And then I'm going to bring him back. Isn't that what he did to Job? He didn't actually do anything to Job, but he said, okay, Satan, you can do this, this, or this, but don't kill him. So it's never God that's punishing us, but he may remove his protection a little bit, and Satan may try to get us a little bit. But he allows that. Why? So we can remember, oh, man, I got to get back to the God. Because Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he's trying to eat on me, and I can't let that happen, and it won't happen if I'm in God. So the only place we're ever going to be satisfied is with God. Now again, don't twist yourself around a little bit. You say, well, I'm right with God, but even though we're kind of going off, if your treasure is somewhere else, you will end up there. So our treasure needs to be in God. The second thing we need to understand is that when we're faced with an impossible situation and you feel like giving up hope, You feel like quitting. You feel like shutting it off. You feel like this is just too much. We need to remember a time when God was faithful to you. All of us, everybody in here, there's been a time, even if you're not a Christian and you're visiting, there's still been a time where God has been faithful to you in your life. I don't know what it is, but too many times things happen and we just, ooh, it feels good and we move on. No, no, no. We need to set up our own mile markers. And remember what God has done for us. How God has rescued and helped us. One of the beauties of scripture is that God could have simply made the Bible a collection of rules and regulations. But instead, he filled it with stories of men and women throughout time that God did things through. Men and women. He worked through Abraham. He worked through Moses. He worked through Deborah. He worked through Esther. He worked through Ruth. He worked through men and women throughout the Bible to give us stories to help us remember his love. The book of Esther shows God's hand in her life without ever mentioning God one time in the book. But you can read it and you just feel God's presence the whole time without it even saying her, his name. Guys, we got to look at our lives. And there are so many times God's presence has been there to help us. We need to remember God's presence. There's a story of a single woman who became a missionary to China. But when the Japanese army invaded during World War II, she was forced to flee. But she loved the orphans. She worked with so many that she couldn't bear to leave them behind. So with only one assistant to help her, she led more than 100 children over the mountains to reach freedom. In the book, A Hidden Prince of Greatness, the authors tell us the unknown and true story of the struggle which Gladys a waiter fought with herself. During Gladys' incredible journey out of war-torn Yangchen, she grappled with despair as never before. One sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. With a 14-year-old girl in the group, 
reminded her of one of the stories the orphans love from Scripture. The story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I'm not Moses, Gladys cried out in desperation. Of course you're not, the girl said. But God is still God. What saved Gladys from plunging into deep, dark despair was remembering God is still God. We may not be Moses, we may not be Samson or Elijah or John the Baptist, but God is still God. Let's close out with one last scripture in Romans chapter 8. And remembering is something that we need to do every Sunday. When you take communion, we need to remember what Jesus did for us. That's that special time of communion. That's like a a memorial day every Sunday when we come together. That's the time of remembering Jesus. But in Romans 8, verse 31, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, we need to be reminded, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you and me. Now, if he went through all that, why would he set us up just to be discouraged today? He wouldn't do that. And so sometimes we need to go back and to remember what God actually did for us. When times get tough, remember what God did for you. When times are good, remember what God did for you. When you're in the middle and you don't know if it's good or bad, remember what God did for you. Remember, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. We as Christians need to have our own special memorial day. And that is every day of our lives, we need to wake up, give thanks to God for allowing us to wake up. Whether you wake up and your back hurt, you're getting out of bed, and your knees hurt, and you, you feel like your, your big toe hurting on the left side, and you get, what am I going to eat? How am I going to catch the bus? I'm late getting my kids to school. All those things going on. You need to still remember, God is God. And that's why you woke up that day. So God be the glory, guys. Have a happy Memorial Day.